Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's praise him this morning, church. Praise God. Praise God. From whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
Yes, let's just dwell in His presence. Clinging to that living hope that only He can provide. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven.
Yes, God, your name is unshaken. You are all powerful. And I pray that you would remind us of that, God. Lord, there's no surprises for you. So Lord, I just pray that right now, if we feel in this room that our lives are out of control, Lord, that we don't know what's going on, something unexpectedly automatic hit, and we were fully taken off guard, Lord, I pray that we can rest in your presence. Lord, that we can cling to you as our firm foundation that is completely unshaken. And Lord, that we can dwell that you are God and we are not. That you are all powerful and almighty. And Lord, that we would not be afraid of the silence. We would communicate with you our praise and our worship.
welcome. Good morning to all of you. I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend. Some of you are camping right now. Some of you guys are even watching this at the maybe the middle of the week because you wanted to catch up on our series. Who knows, there might be some of you that were invited by somebody in our church to check our church out and you decided to check us out this week. And we're just glad that all of you are with us. Welcome, glad you're with us. And man, we're going to dive right in. I have a little bit of an announcement to make today. Now I know that can be kind of off-putting a little bit, can be a little awkward, but I do have a little bit of an announcement today. And that, and that is this, I hope not to shock you, but uh, the majority of you have been making spaghetti all wrong. And I know that might be like, you're not even Italian, David, so I, I, how do you know making it all wrong? I'm just telling you, the majority of people are making their spaghetti all wrong. And I, years ago, I learned from my wife how to make spaghetti. And of course, you take the meat and you cook it down. You got to make sure there's onions and chopped up garlic in that as well. Let that reduce, set that aside. And then you got to get tomato paste and tomato chunks and, and your favorite, you know, spaghetti sauce, which mine is Prego. You let that cook down and then you put them both together. You like simmer that down some more. You get a big pot of water. You get your favorite pasta. You make sure it's al dente. Put those things together and bam, there you have it, spaghetti. And I'm here to tell you that if that's all you do, if that's all you do with your spaghetti, you're doing it all wrong. There is a key ingredient that you have missed and you need to add it to your spaghetti to make it to go from like a backyard cuisine to a fine dining cuisine. And that ingredient is brown sugar. Brown sugar gets added to all those things and just takes it from like, oh, my friend made that and it's okay, to like, oh my gosh, it's amazing, uh, uh, you know, open a restaurant and sell it. Brown sugar is the thing that makes, you know, everything tastes better. Your sauce tastes better. Your pasta tastes better. Your drink somehow tastes better when you have brown sugar in your pasta. Uh, even the garlic bread somehow does taste better when it counteracts the, the taste of the brown sugar in your pasta sauce. And that Caesar salad that you ate 10 minutes before you even got the pasta to the table, it tastes better too somehow because in 10 minutes' time, you're about to eat pasta with brown sugar in it. I'm just telling you, if you don't add brown sugar to your spaghetti, you're doing it all wrong. You cannot subtract the brown sugar from the pasta sauce. In fact, I want you to say it with me. I know you're in your living room right now. Nobody's watching. You cannot subtract the brown sugar in your pasta sauce. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you don't believe me? Try it one time. Ask your children to taste it with brown sugar and then see if they ever eat pasta without brown sugar in it again. I'm telling you they'll want it every single time. Why? Because you cannot subtract the brown sugar from your pasta sauce. Now I mentioned that today because just as people often subtract this key ingredient to their pasta sauce, so have the Corinthian church subtracted a key ingredient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the process, they are ruining God's divine recipe. Today we'll look at what happens to our gospel when we subtract the resurrection. When we take the resurrection account out of the gospel and say we don't need that, what happens to our faith? It is the brown sugar, uh, it's a secret sauce of, his, of our faith, of our gospel. What happens to our faith when we do that? And what happens to our lives? What becomes of the gospel and what becomes of the time we all spent following Christ in our lives? How would a subtracted resurrection affect our beliefs and how would it affect the years that we spent in Christian living. For that, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Challenge you to open up the Word of God today. Hopefully you have a copy with you, either hardbound or maybe on your phone or maybe open up another window where you can get to a Bible app that will let you follow along with us. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the passage we'll be in today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at verses 12 through 19. And the overarching question is, how does it affect our faith system if we subtract the resurrection? How does it affect our faith system if we were to subtract the resurrection? Like, man, why in the world would anybody even question this? This is actually what they were questioning in Corinth, as we're going to see in a second. And we'll ask the question, how does it affect our faith system if we subtract the resurrection? The first thing we were going to see is that we would have wasted all of our time believing the gospel. We will have wasted all of our time uh, in believing in the gospel if the resurrection is not a part of the gospel. Let's look at 
verse 12 in chapter 15. It says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, this doesn't even make sense. You, you, you believe in Christ. You place faith in Christ. We, we delivered a gospel to you that said Christ rose from the dead. How is it even possible that you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. We'll stop right there. How does it affect our faith system if we subtract the resurrection in the gospel story of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing we see is we would have wasted our time believing in the gospel. The formula is rather simple. If there's no resurrection, that means Christ wasn't raised either. And if he wasn't raised either, then we were lied to. Uh, worse yet, not only were we lied to, but we testify to that lie. We are liars. The proclaimers of the gospel, the people who believe in the gospel, are also lying in the midst of it. You've literally wasted your time in believing the gospel if Christ remains dead. Because that's what it would mean. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ remains dead. And that kind of throws everything off. Now, what he's trying to tell the Corinthian church is that you can't have it both ways. You can't, uh, maybe, maybe you're trying to appease a cultural value. You're trying to appease a societal value. You're trying to make Christianity more palatable to your friends who believe a certain way, espouse a certain societal cultural value. And so you're trying to morph the gospel to fit them so that they'll believe and they'll jump on. And if you do that, you just got to understand you got to be careful that you don't throw out major tenets of the gospel when you do that. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, there's one of two things could possibly be happening now in the church in Corinth in the first century. Zach brought up last week, Pastor Zach, uh, one of our teaching pastors, uh, and he did a great job in sharing that in Greek society in the first century, there was a societal value, a secular value that went this way. It was very Platonian. It was like this. Whatever is material, physical, is evil. My skin is evil. My bones are evil. Flesh and blood are evil. Anything physical in the physical realm is evil. But what is spiritual, what is immaterial, where I can't touch it, my soul, that is good. And so because societally speaking, maybe there are many people out there who can't get over this idea that Jesus Christ died and was physically resurrected, they're not going to think that's going to be good because they're going to think, well, matter is evil. And if matter is evil, let's just switch it a little bit. Let's change it and turn it around. Let's just say that he resurrected spiritually and he didn't resurrect bodily. Let's do that so it becomes more palatable along the way for these folks. <clears throat> the worst part of doing such a thing would be sometimes your faith-based system is now suiting those you want to reach rather than suiting what the Bible says or what we believe about the gospel. And he's saying, you want to be careful about this. You're trying to reach them, you're trying to suit them, but in the process, if if, if it changes what you believe, then you don't, be, you don't have anything left. Another thing that possibly could be going on is that they are believing that they've already passed Paul up. Paul, you brought us the gospel and we surpassed you. We are in the eternal state. In fact, we're speaking by the tongues of angels. We, 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 we are doing things that, 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 that show us that we're living in the eternal state. And we've passed you up, Paul. Uh, you know, you're here, we're here, we're already there. And so we don't need to be resurrected to be in the eternal state. We're already in the eternal state. Whatever's going on there, whatever they're dealing with, Paul is simply saying, let me go back to Christ. Because if you pass me up, then you passed him up because he resurrected from the dead. That's the story. That's the story that we brought to you. That's the story that you believed in. That's the truth. And so if you pass me up, it was Paul, then you pass Jesus up too because he rose from the dead. Secondly, if you are trying to say that the resurrection is optional, then you got to know that your very faith is in vain. And I want you to see that again in verse 13. 
Your very faith, if, if the resurrection in this story of Jesus Christ in the gospel is optional, then your very faith is in vain. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The whole thing's a lie. For we've been found as being those who misrepresent God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then he wasn't raised. He's saying the whole system falls down. It's like a house of cards that you, you put, and you're pulling one out of the bottom. The whole thing's going to fall. Uh, you have to have a resurrected Christ. When you don't have a resurrected Christ, when you subtract the resurrection of Christ out of the gospel story, you have nothing. Your faith is in vain. We become liars. You are a liar as well. It is the brown sugar in the recipe. It has to be there. And so we ask the question, how does it affect our faith system if we subtract the resurrection? The first thing we saw is we would have wasted our time in believing the gospel. And now we're going to see we would have wasted our time in Christian living as well. All the living that you did for Christ after you placed your faith in Christ, everything moved forward is all in vain. It's all a waste of time. Let's look at, let's look at that starting in verse 16. It says this. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. And if Christ, if in Christ we have uh, hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, this, the whole thing's a joke is the idea. Uh, what, uh, how does it affect our faith system if, if we subtract the resurrection? Well, we would have wasted our time in Christian living. It says the, the whole Christian faith is in vain. And the reason it's all in vain is because you're still stuck in your sin. Uh, you came to, there's a past life. You came to Christ. He changes you from the inside out, makes you a new creation. You're living a new way. But if you're still stuck in your sin, then what does it matter? Like, why did, you, why did you run towards Christ to get forgiveness, quote unquote, forgiveness of sins that really hasn't been there because he's not resurrected? You're still stuck in your sin. And so all of this is for naught. You're still in your sin. You see, what happens at the cross work of Christ, as we understand it, is I, as a, as, a, as, a, as a person who's not a believer, understand that God's up here, I'm down here, I don't deserve him because if I just done one thing wrong, I don't deserve God. And so what happens at the cross work of Christ is God takes all the things that are unholy about me and places them on the account of Christ. And then because Christ is righteous and holy, he divine, never done anything wrong, God says, I'm going to take his righteousness and I'm going to place it on your account, David. And even though I know I've done more than one thing wrong, millions of things wrong, I can forgive them all because you have placed, I placed your sin on Christ's work on the cross and I've taken his righteousness and I placed it on your account. Here's the problem. If Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead, we have no guarantees that there is victory over sin. My sin is still uh, not accounted for. My sin is not covered. It's not atoned for. Jesus Christ has to atone for my sin. He has to cover me in my sin. The blood of Jesus has got to cover me. So God says, I'm going to give you a stay of execution. I'm going to give you a righteousness that you don't deserve. I'm going to allow you to have heaven even though you don't deserve it because Christ lived a life on your behalf that you could not live. And he took the death on your behalf that you deserved. And the evidence that I can bring you to new life is that Christ was resurrected on the third day. And so if you don't have resurrection, you have no guarantees that there's victory over sin, which means you're stuck in your sin, which means this whole time you believed you that this past life, you came to Jesus, and you changed things and moved forward living for God. Why do that? Why do it since you're still stuck in your sin anyway? The joke's on you. This whole thing's a charade. You should have just lived your best life now and done whatever everybody else is doing. Because in the end, you're still in sin. You're still stuck in sin. You're the most pitied of all. See, the father who raised Christ up from the dead was going to raise you from the dead. But since there's no resurrection of the dead, then there's not raising anybody. 
In fact, he goes on to say, uh, not only that, but the people who have passed away, they, they lived their life, they came to know Christ, and they passed away. They fall asleep as a euphemism for, for, for uh, passing away in this physical life. What happens to them? Oh, well, they perish, they're gone. There's no hope for them either. Because just as Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised, oh, wait a second, Christ wasn't raised from the dead, so we can't claim that we're going to be raised from the dead either. As he's going out of his way, even sarcastically to make the point, listen, if this is true, like you said, because you want to make things more palatable for your friends to understand Christianity and jump on to Christianity, if you give this up, you give this exhibit A up of the resurrection of Christ, you've got nothing. The whole thing falls like a house of cards. It all rides on the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, number one, Christ would not have risen. Number two, preaching of the gospel would be meaningless. Number three, the faith in Christ is worthless. Number four, all witnesses to and preachers of the resurrection of Christ are liars. Number five, all men would be still in their sins. Number six, all former believers would have been eternally perished. Number seven, Christians would be the most pitiable of all people on the earth because here they're living for something, thinking that there's some kind of you know, light at the end of the tunnel, and there isn't. And the joke is on you. The joke is on you. He says, you're really going to give this up, this story of the resurrection, just because you want your friends to, to believe and, and jump on with you. You don't realize that you're giving up everything. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's interesting that they were dealing with that back then, but who really questions the resurrection today? And, and I want to tell you something. That's actually old news. For centuries there's been, uh, both in the Christian world in the name of Christ trying to redefine the resurrection, or even in the secular, you know, kind of uh, uh, skeptical mind, there's been questions of the resurrection. I can give you four theories on what happened to Christ's body if he didn't rise from the dead. Very popular theories, actually. Uh, Been around for hundreds of years, centuries on end. One is called the wrong tomb theory. Uh, this is basically taking out of the account of Mark. You remember Mark has women going to the, to the tomb first. And, and women are unreliable in the mind of a first century man, both Greek and Jewish. And so they're not allowed even, their, 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 their uh, testimony isn't allowed in court because it's not, it's not uh, considered worthy of, of a testimony worth of an eyewitness and so, uh, I, you know, the women got it wrong is the idea. They went to the wrong tomb. They, they, they took a right when they should have took a left. And so they went to another tomb that's empty, but Jesus is still in the tomb. That's one theory. Now, interestingly enough, there would be a lot of people who would want to correct this falsification of the resurrection of Christ. The uh, Jewish leaders would want uh, this whole Christianity thing to die. It doesn't die. It takes over the whole world. Uh, the Romans would want this whole Christianity thing to die because there's this story about this guy who says he's going to rise from the dead and he rose from the dead. And, and, and all that could be put away if they just produced the body. Oh, if the women were supposed to go right and they went left. Uh, we could just open up the tomb and say, here's your Jesus. He's not risen from the dead. He's not God. But nobody ever does that. Doesn't seem like the wrong tomb theory is all that plausible. There's the apparent death or swoon theory. This is the idea that Christ wasn't completely dead when he was taken off the cross. Now that's really interesting because if you know anything about crucifixion, it's one of the most gruesome ways to die. He was flogged in his back. His, his back was ripped to shreds. He's bleeding all over the place. He had a knife in his side. He's nailed to a cross. He's asphyxiated on the cross. And the chief guard, his job was to make sure you don't take the guy off the cross until he's dead. And if you do take him off, the cross and it turns out that he's not dead then you'll pay it with your own life they'll execute the executioner if they were wrong and taken off but let's just say that somehow Jesus was able to survive all that he would have been placed in a tomb and then by himself and that body that just that I just described to you is torn to pieces somehow moved a 2,000 pound stone out of the way so he could escape and by the way there's 200 soldiers on the other side of that tomb or that 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 rock that he would somehow had to fend off before he could make it. The apparent swoon or the the apparent death theory doesn't seem to be that plausible either. There's the authority theft theory. That's the idea that the authorities stole the body because they they, they wanted to stop any possibility of anybody else stealing the body, so they stole the body. The problem with that theory is that, that basically fulfilled his own prediction. He said he would die and he would rise again. Now everybody's going around saying, where's the body? He must have rose from the dead. And all the authorities would have had to do is go, oh, here he is. We have his body. 
And then that would have squashed all that. Would have squashed the whole movement of Jesus Christ. It's still around 2,000 years later. The last one is called the conspiracy theory. Uh, this is a theory that, the, it's probably the most plausible one, to be honest with you. This is a theory that the disciples themselves stole the body. Now, how they would have got past those 200 guards, I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're trained soldiers. Somehow these fishermen turn into trained assassins. Doesn't seem likely, but we watch movies like this all the time, and we love the down and out guy. And somehow they get past those guys, they move the stone, and they steal the body. And, and they would seem to be the ones who would benefit the most from having a, Jesus, a Christ who is risen, just like he said he would be risen, they would have the most to, to, uh, to gain from a lie like that. But the most compelling part of this story is that 10 of those guys die. They die at the hands of, of, of Peter, dies upside down when they say, we're going to kill you for this lie about Jesus Christ. He goes, actually, can you crucify me upside down? Christian history says, I'm not worthy to die the same way Jesus Christ died. I want to die upside down. When he could have just said, the whole thing's a lie, I'll show you where the body is. And I'd rather live on in life. Doesn't do that. Ten of the other 12 don't do it as well. One gets uh, uh, exiled, put in prison for the rest of his life on an island of Patmos. That's John. All these guys do all this for a lie. Seems very, very difficult to believe that even the conspiracy theory would happen. I mean, a lot of people would lie, but would they die for a lie? Seems kind of difficult to believe that. You add to the, the players in the narrative and how many players would really have a motivation to produce the body of the Romans. They want to keep the peace and collect taxes. Uh, right when Christ's body is not found and there's all this word about a resurrection, you got the Jews versus the disciples and, and everything's in an uproar. That's not keeping the peace for them. They would like just to keep the mobs down and collect taxes. They'd have every reason to produce the body if they could have. Uh, religious leaders, they, you know, want to keep their spiritual authority. They could prove Christ didn't rise from the dead if they could prove the body. But they didn't do that either. And the disciples, if they would just stop lying, they could live. Because they end up by dying for this entire lie. Ten of twelve. Something, however, even though it's so compelling, even today, the evidence is so compelling that Christ truly did die and was resurrected on the third day, a bodily resurrection. Something was compelling the Corinthian church to start being tempted to disbelieve this. We heard it. We were compelled by the evidence. And, and, and as we saw last week, uh, Zach was saying, Paul, hey, there's 500 people who saw him. Go ask them. They're still alive. A lot of them are still alive. You can even go back and talk to them, the ones who saw him. There's so much compelling evidence for the resurrection, but there's some reason that they're feeling compelled to disbelieve what they believed to begin with. And I would just say to you, be careful that your endeavors to make the gospel more palatable to your friends and your family doesn't end up detracting or subtracting from something that is essential in the gospel. Be careful about that. In fact, that leads us to our big idea. Erasing any part of the gospel erases salvation. That's what Paul's saying. You don't you realize if you take this piece out, you've got nothing. The whole thing is futile. Like, like you believe the lie, we profess the lie, and we're not, we're still dead in our sin. God doesn't forgive us. There's nothing for us in the future. All those who died before us are just gone. You do realize that, that when you erase any part of the gospel, you erase salvation. Be careful that when you're trying to make things palatable for people and, and trying to uh, appeal to their own cultural, societal values. And look, we're like you. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're countercultural. Sometimes we're different. In fact, Jesus said, you're going to be countercultural like me. And they killed me and they'll kill you. They came after me and they'll come after you. They won't like what I was saying. They didn't like what I was saying to the point that they killed me. So they won't like you representing what I say. And you might have difficulty along the way as well. Well, the resurrection is pretty essential to our faith. And it's not something that we can just erase off the scene. You know, I... Um, before I became a Christian, uh, a Protestant uh, Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ in the way that I understand it today, uh, I, I was uh, brought up Roman Catholic, a different tradition, still a, a Christian tradition, but a different one. I didn't quite understand things like I do today. And my mother had sent me to a high school that was uh, a Roman Catholic private high school. It was kind of the best 
situation of all situations, considering that we're in such a depressed neighborhood, there's so much gun violence, there's so much gang violence, there's so much fear. Uh, uh, to go to a public school in that setting was just uh, really, really difficult. And so my mother decided to make the sacrifice to send us to private school, a Roman Catholic private school. And because we were in a Roman Catholic private school, we had priests that were called fathers, and we had brothers who were like, uh, weren't quite fathers, but they were ministers of God in the Roman Catholic structure of things. And they were our teachers. So we had priests, fathers, brothers who are, who are our teachers. I still remember Father Mel and Father John. Uh, they had a unique way of keeping the class in order. Uh, you know, if somebody was talking out of turn, uh, you know, they would take a stapler, like kind of like this, you know, and, and they'd throw it at the person. And, uh, and you would think, man, I, it wasn't only staplers. It was like, you know, tape dispensers. Remember those big tape dispensers? Uh, uh, you know, metal pencil sharpeners. Like just take it and throw it at people, you know, throw it at them. And uh, you would think that, that, you know, that was wrong or something. But, you know, you could call the police or whatever, but these are holy men. It didn't matter. <laughs> so, so they got away with it. But, I mean, they would make sure they wouldn't throw it at anybody's head. But the idea was shut up, you know, and they throw it at us. We actually loved them. We thought they were super cool that they would do that. Uh, we thought that was kind of funny. And it actually wrangled us, kind of reined us in at times. There was another guy uh, on our school campus named Brother Jerry. Uh, Brother Jerry was a, a, a guy, he was a really old dude, but for some reason, when you were in real big trouble, you went to Brother Jerry's office, and everybody was scared of Brother Jerry. Like, like nobody wanted to end up in Brother Jerry's office. And, and I can't figure out why. He was like 85 years old. What could he possibly do to you? Kind of a soft-spoken dude, too, but everybody knew not to mess with him. Even the worst of the worst kid was like, I don't want to end up in Brother Jerry's office. Uh, I don't even know what happens in Brother Jerry's office, but I know when you go in there and you come out, you feel a certain way coming out. Nobody wanted to mess with Brother Jerry. And Brother Jerry also taught the upper division math of the school. So he'd be teaching like algebra two, trigonometry, pre-calculus and calculus. Uh, those were his uh, classes that he would say. And, and being such a soft-spoken guy, you know, he would turn and, and, and he would write a problem on the dry erase board or the whiteboard, right? And, and while he was turned, all the students would kind of snicker and then they wad up balls and they'd throw it at each other. And I'm like, really? That happens in Brother Jerry's classroom. I can't believe that because he's like the guy that everybody was scared of. But when he's turned around this way, he's 85 years old, he can't hear anything anyway. And so they would just take advantage of that and they would snicker and they'd throw things. But he was a smart guy. And so he would learn that they're messing around behind them. And, and what he would do is he would take his dry eraser, his little eraser, and he would, he would, he would write the, 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 the problem on the dry erase board and he'd take the eraser and immediately erase it. And all the students would be like, wait, Brother Jerry, why well, I didn't get to take the notes. Now, you probably would have been able to take the notes if you were listening and you weren't throwing wads of paper and snickering at each other. But he knew what he was doing. He'd take the eraser and he'd erase the dry erase board. And, and, and all the students would be like, wait, we didn't get that one. How are we going to do our homework if we don't have that one? And he'd go, oh, you didn't get it? Oh, oh look, it's right here. And he'd just take the eraser and go, look, it's right here. It's on the eraser. I got it for you, no problem. I, I got it for you right here. You just, just, read it off. just read it off right off the eraser. Obviously, he was being sarcastic when he did that. Did you miss it? I've got it right here, the bottom of the eraser. And ironically, he was teaching his class an important fact. When you erase some things, you can't get them back. And it might behoove you to pay attention sometimes. And I wonder how many Christians pay real close attention to the foundation of their entire salvation. Like, Will they be willing to guard it with their lives and, and not make things more palatable for people so they can receive it the way they want to receive it, so, that, so they can be appeased in what they want to believe. But have you ever thought to yourself, it may be my job to look, pay close attention and guard this thing with everything that I have. Because erasing part of the gospel erases salvation. Let me tell you what I mean. When you erase part of the gospel, you're erasing your entire salvation. Christ's humanity has to be, it's a primary, he has to be human or he can't be a sacrifice for us. And he also has to be divine, 100% human, 100% divine. Doesn't add up to 200%. We don't understand it, but both things have to be true for our gospel to be legitimate. That means he has to have been born of a virgin because if he wasn't born of a virgin, then he's not divine. And so that becomes a primary issue. He had to live a sinless life. He could have never done anything wrong. Yes, the scriptures talk about how he was tempted like all of us are tempted, but he never engaged in that temptation. 
He always had the right answer. He always chose the right choice in a way that we could never do it so he can be our replacement and our substitute. He had had to actually die and and be an actual atonement. He can't just maybe, you know, slept for a little while and and, and all of a sudden woke up again. No, he had to be dead. If he's not dead, he can't be our atonement. The the message of exclusivity, exclusivity, that that not all roads reach to heaven. Like, like, that's not possible. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, it's got to be only him, and yet, Blue Research says that 60% of believers believe that all roads lead to heaven. Christians say, oh, any road will get you there, no sweat. 60% of them. Have we made things more palatable for our friends and our families and our own consciousness that we have let the house of cards fall right before our eyes? Because when you erase any part of the gospel, you erase salvation. And lastly, his resurrection had to be a bodily, physical resurrection if we are ever going to have a bodily, physical resurrection as well. Because just as Christ, just as the Father raised Christ from the dead, so will the Father raise us from the dead. If he didn't raise Christ from anything, he's not going to raise us from anything. We've got to marry each other. These are primary issues. They're not secondary issues. They are the foundation of our gospel. And so I say, when you erase any part of the gospel, you erase salvation. Be careful of what you're willing to go, huh, not that big of a deal. Did Jesus Christ really walk on the earth? Did he really die? I mean, isn't this whole thing just about him saying we should be good people and live morally and, and, and all moral people get there somehow? Whoa, wait a second. When you believe that, the house of cards is falling. You, you've gone too far. You're now erasing our very salvation. I mention that because I'm grieved today. The definition of morality today is changing every day. Biblical definitions of sexuality, gender, gender identity, sexual practice, they're all coming under attack. Be careful that in the effort to make Christianity more palatable to those that you love, that you don't subtract or erase essential things. It's erasing any part of the gospel erases salvation. The Corinthian church may have even had the right heart. We just want to be able to reach our friends. But they started disbelieving something that was essential to their faith. They gave them the rite of passage into eternity with God in heaven. We've got to be careful that we don't follow suit. We've got to be careful that we don't do the same. I was joking at the beginning, brown sugar, I do believe, makes your spaghetti better. It's an essential ingredient. You can't subtract it. That's in jest. But what's not in jest is Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection cannot be subtracted. Because if it is, you don't have a faith. It is futile, and you're going nowhere. Might as well live like everyone else because there's nothing at the end of this tunnel. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's nothing for you down the road. You must believe in those major tenets of the faith. It is the secret sauce to God's divine recipe. I wonder if you'd pray with me real quick. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you can close your eyes right now. I know it's maybe kind of weird. You're in your living room right now and nobody knows, nobody sees you. Just do some work with yourself between you and God. Where are you at? Do you really believe these things or is it just something your family kind of raised you in and you think to yourself, well, that's, that's what I am because that's, that's, but I don't know that I really believe this stuff. And we're living through some tragic times in our country today. These beautiful little children who are taken away from this time on earth way too soon. Life has not promised us. Would you consider what you really believe as it relates to the gospel, the cross of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, his work on the cross, whether or not you place your faith in it as your only means, only means, to approach the Father. I pray that you would consider that meaningfully tonight or this morning, whenever you're listening to this. And I hope that you'll pray for me and pray with me as I try to pray for our country during these difficult times. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that we have a hope beyond this world. 
The flip side of all the sarcasm that Paul's saying is Christ did die on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day. Our faith is not futile. We do have a place to go. You resurrected Christ. You will resurrect us. This time on earth is 80 to 100 years of physicality. We will get to a day where we spend millions upon millions of years, and we're bored of it. We've been there for so long because we do have a hope beyond this world. We do. That's where we stand as believers in Christ. And yet, I think of a nation that's mourning right now. I think of these families. I watch these father talk about his daughter and these people who are, I, I, I have no words. I have nowhere to go except for, for you. Would you guard their hearts and their minds? Would you somehow use the story to bring them to you? Would you somehow protect this world? I have no answers. I just acknowledge that you are God and that you are good and that somehow you have a plan so we ask you to protect those families, protect our children, protect our, our city, our nation. And most of all, would you protect our hearts? I pray for the person right now who's really deliberating and saying, what do I believe? When you get to heaven and those doors are there, he's not going to ask you what you did on this earth. He's going to ask you what do you believe about Christ. Would you place your faith in him? That's the direction you want to go. That's where we get the assurance of salvation. That's where we get the assurance of a resurrection to another life. I pray that you do it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this weekend. I thank you for all those camping, all those watching online. Would you bless everybody? And would you be there with our country in this difficult time? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor David. Hey, if you're here watching with us today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you did so today. Maybe you prayed with Pastor David just now. It's as simple as a prayer um, where you put your faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. When he died on that cross, it was a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world for anyone who believes it. And all you have to do is believe it and say, yes, Lord, I need your salvation. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness of those sins so that I can be uh, forgiven and become a Christian, Lord. We put our faith in you. That's all you got to do. You can do that in the quietness of your heart. You can do that in your own living room, wherever you're watching this message. Um, and be, that, if you do that, you become a Christian. You turn away from the world. You turn towards God. Um, that Jesus paid this price for us. You know, it's Memorial Day weekend. And Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who uh, died on the battlefield, died defending our country. And we remember them at this time. Um, that's not unlike what Jesus did for us. He died so that we may live, so that we could have freedom, so we could have eternal life with him, and that's available to you. If you're ready to give your life to Christ or you gave your life to Christ, would you let us know? And you can do that at campcc.net. Click on Next Steps, and you can fill a little form there. We want to be able to pray for you. We want to be able to uh, get in touch with you if you have any questions. So I would encourage you to fill that out and let us know if God's doing something in your life today. All right, we're going to receive our offering. Uh, we do that online. There's three ways to participate. Um, if you're uh, writing a check from home, you can mail that to the church office or uh, give online. When you give, it helps support all the ministries here at KMCC. Um, and we do appreciate um, and depend on your generosity to continue the ministries here. Uh, before we go, let's check out what's coming up next on this video. Hi, KMCC. I'm Carolyn Hart, and I serve in our Awana ministry, and I'm so grateful to be part of our church family here at KMCC. If it is your first, second, or third time as a guest, we have some gifts for you to thank you for checking us out. We want to put a face to your name, so please go to the welcome counter in the lobby with your connection card. And if you're watching us online, go to camcc.net slash next steps. Check out what's coming up at CAMCC. The month of May, Zoe Initiative, reaching and rescuing trafficked children. The month of May, we are partnering with Zoe, a nonprofit organization that fights against human trafficking. Ways for you to get involved would be one, join our 24-hour prayer time. Sign up for a slot on the patio. Two, donate $10 coffee and fast food gift cards to the advocate team that meets with these girls. And number three, donate to purchase a van for Zoe. This is a huge need for them right now. Sunday, June 12th, Baptism Sunday. Take the next step in your faith by publicly declaring Jesus the Savior and Lord of your life. We will have baptisms for both gatherings. To sign up or if you have questions, please go to camcc.net slash next steps or email daryl at camcc.net. We will provide everything you need. 
Tuesday, June 14th, Worship Night. Come join us for a dynamic night of worship, prayer, and scripture. Invite your friends and family to join you from 7 to 8 p.m., and it's going to be a powerful evening. Tuesday, June 14th, PJs and popcorn. Kids birth all the way up through third grade. Come in your pajamas for a praise party kid style and all-you-can-eat popcorn while your parents are at worship night. For more information, please check out our website at camcc.net. Important dates coming up, so make sure and save the date and check out upcoming events at camcc.net. High School Friathon Camp, June 19th through 24th. Middle School Catalina Trip, August 5th through 8th. To stay in the loop at what's going on at CamCC, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information on any of these events, go to camcc.net. Can you please stand for the send-off? Thank you, Dave, for that awesome message this morning. And that was really fundamental about is the resurrection. And that's a cornerstone of our faith. And I love the big idea that when you erase any part of the gospel, you're erasing salvation. If you have a loved one that gave their life for our country, we agree with you. And we are so appreciative of their service. Remember those watching online to go to kmcc.net slash next steps fill our connection time card, excuse me, especially if it's your first, second, or third time here. And parents, next Sunday, June 5th, is our promotion Sunday. And this means that your kids and our youth will move up to the next grade, and some of them will even join a new class on Sunday or during the midweek. So we can't see, wait to see you here on Sunday next week. And invite someone new, bring a friend. Have a great rest of your week.